I was thinking uh, this morning, just a few moments ago, that uh, 18 years ago, uh, right around this time, I was putting on a tuxedo and nervously getting ready to uh, walk, well, I wasn't walking down an aisle, but I was standing at the, uh, the front of an, of an auditorium waiting for Amy to come down, hoping that Amy would, would come down. Uh, my history made me a little nervous um, at that moment, but she did, and so... Uh, this, today we celebrate 18 years of, of being married to each other. And uh, for those of the, you that know both of us, you, you know without a shadow of a doubt that she's the better half of the, pa- of, of, of the partnership. So, um, Have you ever, you know, I, I know um, right now uh, there, there's so much what we call social networking going on. I mean, there's things like Twitter and Facebook and and MySpace, and I, there's so many things I don't even know the names of, but, um, you know, we got email and texting and Googling and all these words, you know. But have you ever just stopped and wondered what it would look like if the nativity took place right now? How, how all the social networking and all of that would play into the mix? Well, this past week, uh, we, we, um, we discovered something that uh, would kind of plays that out a little bit, and so we wanted to bring that into your world as well. So check out the screens.
kind of changes the picture a little bit in your mind, doesn't it? About to what that might look like. And uh, I know many of you probably want to know where we got that from or where to find it. You can go on to Tony Morgan's blog at TonyMorganLive.com and see it. He posted it up there. But, um, you know, when, you, when you, you put an image like that in your mind and then you think about um, all the other images of Christmas that uh, have been put in our minds over the years, you realize that... Um, there are a lot of false ideas, not only about Christmas, but what the perfect picture of the Christian life should look like. And you think about, you know, something like, uh, you know, especially if you look at TV, there's a lot of uh, pastors that talk about uh, prosperity and uh, how, um, you, you know, if you come to Christ, there's a possibility you could get rich, you could live in a huge house and, and drive fancy cars. Or um, another side of that, maybe you grew up uh, in like a church like I did where there's, you know, it's all about the rules and the rituals. And uh, if you do the rules and the rituals, then everything's great and God's happy with you. And, but if not, you, you know, God's mad and you're constantly in danger of being punished. Or um, maybe for some of you, the idea of, of the Christian life um, is all about, um, you know, if you come to Christ, all of your problems will go away. Everything's going to be great for you. There's going to be no more problems, no more trials, no more heartache. Everything's going to be pain-free. And, and many of you have heard that kind of invitation um, to the Christian life. And then there's a whole other side of that um, where, you know, if you come to Christ, you need to be a martyr or, or live like a monk. You know, anything at all that reeks of having, you know, a Christian having nice stuff or experiencing, you know, some kind of pleasurable experience in life is wrong. We need to deny that and renounce that and this and that. And so over the years, there's, there's been a lot of twisting of scripture and a lot of confusion about what the Christian life should really look like. And um, so I believe that as we get into talking this morning, I think as we look at the characters that we're going to throw out to you this morning, I think it kind of helps clear the picture up a little bit of not only what it looks like to seek after Christ, but what a follower of Jesus Christ should, should truly look like. Now, oftentimes, I look at stories in the Bible and I ask myself the question, why is this in here? Why, why did God in his infinite wisdom decide to put this story in this book? Or, you know, you, you see a name and you go, why, why did God put that name in there? Why was that name so significant that God decided to, to put it on the pages of this book right here? And, um, and, and I'm, again, I'm not always quite sure I see it, but when it comes to the wise men of the nativity, I, I, I think God paints a very clear picture of why these guys mysteriously enter into the story of the nativity and why God saw it to be so important to put it into um, uh, the book of Matthew. And I think it, as, we, as we talk about this story this morning as, and as we study their journey to fi- find Christ, not only does it help us to dispel some of the false teaching that's, that's out there, but I think it also helps us to learn what it means to, to truly experience um, an authentic, the authentic spiritual journey that God wants all of us to experience, not only here at Christmas time, but all through the years. So I want you to look at, at Matthew chapter 2, because that's the only place in Scripture where we find this story. Um, in Matthew chapter 2, we see it in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, when you think about the wise men, 
Um, maybe you've received a Christmas card with their image or, or you've, you know, you've seen it in church or wherever. You, we normally have a picture of, of something like this in our minds, of three guys coming to town, bearing gifts, and there they are, uh, coming over into Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's off in the distance, or, you know, or in our minds, maybe, you know, Bethlehem, and there's the, the star and the whole thing right there. And, and that's the image that we normally see, but the wise men are really kind of these, it's, these mysterious men that all of a sudden pop into the Christmas story. I mean, if you listen to tradition, or if you even remember some of the words that are in, in Christmas songs, you would think that we know all there is to know about these guys. But the fact of the matter is, we really don't know much at all. I mean, there are a lot of questions about these guys. For instance, where did they really come from? Um, when we sing the song, um, we always sing that they came from an orient afar. You know, they're, they're travelers that, that came from the east. We know that. But a lot of people think that they came from China. These guys traveled over 4,500 miles by camel or foot or whatever it was, and, and they came that distance. However, if you look in the book of Daniel, you see that the magi, the wise men, are associated with a group of people called the Medes. And, and for centuries, the Medes lived in what would be considered today northwest Iran. So it's possible that they could have traveled um, anywhere over 900 miles to, to come to visit baby Jesus at this time. And, and if that were the case, wherever they came from from the east, they would have traveled over rocky slopes. They would have gone through uh, parched deserts. I mean, it, it, was, it would have been a very rough journey. Um, Another question is, how many were there? You know, we, we think of three gifts, so we always put three gifts with three men. So there, in our minds, these three kings came to worship Jesus. And, um, but there could have been more than that. We don't know. The other question is, what did they do for a living? I mean, some people think they were astronomers because they were following a star. Some people have corrupted the word magi into the idea that the wise men were wizards or they were magicians or something like that. However, if you look at the magi found in the book of Daniel, what you see is that these were powerful political figures who not only had a tremendous amount of influence, but they also had a tremendous amount of knowledge in all types of areas, including astrology and astronomy. So regardless of who these guys were, where they come from, these guys mysteriously show up in the story and then all of a sudden they mysteriously disappear. However, what we do know about these guys is that they went on a journey. And their journey gives us a wonderful picture of what it looks like when someone seeks after God and finds him and begins to follow him. And from this story, we see basically four elements to their journey that I want to lay out to you um, this morning. And I want you to write them down if you would. First of all, we see faith. We see faith. Um, in verse 2, it says, Where is he? That is born the king of the Jews, for we saw his star in the east, and they have, and have come to worship him. Now, what in the world would cause prominent men like this to leave their homes, to leave their families, to leave their jobs, and to travel such a long way through some pretty treacherous uh, situations to, 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 to see a child? I mean, 900 plus miles, wherever, wherever they came from. Well, only one thing could cause men to do that, and, and it's faith. These guys didn't come to town asking if a baby had been born who was the king of the Jews. They knew he existed. The, the star that they followed was the proof. All they wanted to know is, where is he? Their purpose had been established. 
The purpose was just simply to find him. And it didn't matter how far they had to travel. It didn't matter how dangerous the conditions were. They were willing to risk it all to find him. You say, why? why, why? Well, they, they lay it out for us. They wanted to worship him. Now, I want you to think for a moment about what their neighbors' reactions could have been. Um, you know, here, neighbors are watching these guys saddle up their camels and, and you know, loaded up with supplies for what appeared to be a pretty long journey. They had gifts to bring, and someone probably said, where, where are you guys going? Well, we really don't know where we're going. How far are you traveling? Well, we're, we're not quite sure how far we're traveling. Um, when are you going to be back? Well, I, I really couldn't tell you when we're going to be back. And, and I'm sure that some of these people are thinking, man, you know, you guys really aren't that wise at all to be called the wise men. You know, I mean, you're going on this journey, you have no clue. However, when you come through the pages of the Bible, you see this same kind of faith repeated over and over and over again. You think about God coming to Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave this, this, this place, Ur of the Chaldees, where, where you've been all your life, and I want you to take your wife and your whole family, and I want you to go somewhere that you've never been before called the promised land. The promised land. And Abraham does it. Or you, or you look and you see Noah. And he's building this ark for years and years and years, building an ark. And people are going, what are you building an ark for? It's going to rain. What's rain? What's a flood? They'd never even seen anything like that before. And Noah just kept building an ark big enough for every animal that lived in the world in pairs. And you think about someone like David, young shepherd boy, goes down into a valley, the valley of Elah. He's got five stones and a slingshot. And he is going to fight the most imposing character of the day, a guy by the name of Goliath. Faith. You think about um, Daniel, willing to be thrown in a lion's den rather than leave his devotion to God. You think of guys like Peter and Andrew and James and John who, who left everything, dropped their nets, left their families, all to follow Jesus. They didn't even know where they were going. They just left everything and just followed this man that they had never met before. And here you've got these wise men who are hitching up their camels and starting across the desert to follow a star. Listen, a true spiritual journey will always involve faith. You look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and it says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The writer of Hebrews says that without faith you cannot please God. Now what is faith? Faith is an action word. It's risk in action. James chapter 2 verse 26 tells us that faith without action is a dead faith. It's dead. It always chooses the spiritual over the material. It always chooses the eternal over the temporal. We become a Christian by faith alone in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't stop there. We live out our Christian life every day the same way that we came to Christ. We live it out by faith. Faith in action is what causes us to grow in our relationship to Jesus Christ. It increases our capacity to be used by God in a significant way. In my lifetime, I've had the the privilege and opportunity of of getting to know some giants of the faith. Um, Just names, if I threw them out there, you probably would know them. And I've stepped back and I've examined these guys' life and I've thought to myself and, and said, what is it about these guys Out of all the other people in the world, that God, why would God choose to use them in a significant way, even above and beyond most people? And the one thing that I see in all of these men, all of these women, is faith. It's the one thing that just, that sets them apart. They have an enormous amount of faith. I remember years ago watching Charles Stanley on TV. He was talking about faith, and 
He was holding up his hands as if he was holding faith, and he said, he said, listen, he said, you'll never know the power of what you possess. Talking about faith. You'll never know the power of what you possess until you're willing to let God put it to the test. And if your Christian life this morning is void of faith, not only are you not pleasing God, but I guarantee you your spiritual journey has probably become dead and lifeless. It's dried up. Because a faith that is willing to venture out with God, a faith that is willing to take a risk, becomes a, becomes a faith that is exciting. It becomes a faith that is, a, a, that is alive. Your venture becomes an adventure. And these wise men were respected. They were admired in their world, but they were willing to leave it all to catch a glimpse of what was underneath that star. They had to see the child, and their faith propelled them to take a risk. But listen, their journey also included... Some trials and hardships. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I may come and worship him as well. Now, listen, when it says in verse 3 that Herod was troubled by the news of a newborn king, the king of the Jews, I want you to understand something, that Herod had issues, all right? And his issues went well beyond the news that a young child had been born in Bethlehem. Herod was a messed up dude. All right? And this guy had some problems. And Herod tells us that, or the history tells us that Herod was a very paranoid king. When he was in his, in his 20s, history tells us his father, uh, who was also a king, was poisoned and murdered by a bunch of palace schemers. And so a few years later, after he had become king, he threw this huge party and he invited all of the people that he suspected were involved in his father's death, and then he systematically had them killed by hitmen one by one at this party. And uh, history also tells us that he was so paranoid that someone was going to overthrow him during his reign that he had his wife's grandmother killed, he had his brother-in-law killed, he even had three of his own sons killed because he felt that they were becoming too zealous to one day take on the throne of, of Jerusalem. So when you read that Herod, Herod was troubled, you need to understand that the boy just wasn't right, okay? This, this was a guy who, who, who was disturbed, all right? So what does he do? He gathers all of the priests, all of the teachers of the Old Testament, and he says, I want, I want you to come to me, and I want you to tell me, where does it say that the Messiah is going to be born? And they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Then the Bible says he secretly calls the Magi to come to him. He knew that they were in town. And he asked them to give them, him a little info on the star and the exact time it appeared. And so from that, he determines that Jesus at this point in the story would have been about one and a half years old. So Herod tells the wise men, he says, Go find him and come back to me and report to me what you find so that I can go worship the child as well. Now, basically, these, these wise men were being used as pawns in Herod's hands. He was trying to use them not so that he could worship Jesus, but so that he could go kill Jesus and probably kill the wise men as well. Now, as I mentioned earlier, one of the fallacies today in, in a lot of the teaching that is out there is that if you follow Christ, everything's going to go well in your life. 
And then if something is not going well, then you must be doing something wrong. You're not, you don't have enough faith. And so because you don't have enough faith, either you're not getting healed, you're not experiencing life the way God would have you to experience, you're not you know, driving the car or the house or having the money that God would, would truly want you to have. God's ultimately punishing you for something. But a true spiritual journey, as we see throughout Scripture, always involves trials and troubles. And one of the elements of the Christian faith that we even don't hear a lot about, but yet we see it in Scripture, is suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us that we are, we are called as followers of Jesus to suffer. You say, why? Why would God want us to suffer? So that we might grow and become like Jesus. James chapter 1 talks about trials, and it says that through our trials, God is producing inside of us, in us, perseverance and maturity. Now listen, the Christian life is, is full of blessings. It's full of great promises. Don't miss that part of it. We hear all about that all the time. But it's also a life that is going to have trouble. We are going to go through trials. Listen, just, just the human experience promises us heart, heartaches and hardships. But we're going to go through suffering. We're going to go through things that are, that, are, that are going to be very difficult. But I love the promise that Jesus gives us in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have told you these things, talking to his disciples. He says, so that you, that in me, and that's the key, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So regardless of what you're dealing with, Jesus says, we can have peace. We can have freedom from worry. We can have a calm spirit in Jesus because not only has he overcome the world by his death on the cross, but because that of that, he has made us overcomers as well. In other words, we're not slaves to sin. We are not defeated by our trials and our hardships. We are not overtaken by our suffering. Because of the victory that Jesus achieved on the cross, the Bible says that we are more than conquerors. We are overcomers. But we're going to go through some tough times. We're going to go through some suffering. We're going to face hard situations. And we're going to deal with even some bad people along the way. And that's what's happening in the story. These wise men are in a tough spot. Herod, Herod is setting them up so that he can destroy the Messiah. But this whole time, God is in control. God is in control of this story. God was not surprised or concerned by Herod's actions. He had everything under control. And in the very same way, he has the issues of your life under control as well. He's not surprised by anything that you're going through. He's, he's not concerned that it's going to overtake you. Because he knows who you are because of Jesus and what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You're an overcomer. You're more than a conqueror. So their journey involved faith, it involved trials and trouble, but it also involved worship. Look at verse 9. After hearing this, the king, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, when the wise men started out on the journey, their purpose was to find Jesus so that they could worship him. All right? Now, Matthew tells us that they brought to Jesus three gifts. They brought uh, gold, which represented wealth, a gift that you would give to a king. They brought frankincense, which was um, a gift that, um, that you would give to possibly a priest because he would take a frankincense and he would burn it as incense to worship God inside the temple. And then they gave myrrh. 
And myrrh was a perfume that was used to anoint the dead. And, and you think about that, and you think, what a, what, a, what a strange gift to give a small child. Imagine your, your you know, two-year-old opening up and going, myrrh, you know. What was myrrh? Myrrh was given as a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrificial death as the Savior of the world. Listen, these guys didn't just stop at the Bethlehem Walmart because they were late to the party and needed to find a cheap gift. You know, let's just grab something off the bargain rack or whatever. Um, These guys thought about these gifts. They put a lot of time into these gifts. They thought very clearly about what they would bring into the presence of Jesus. And I want to tell you, these gifts were, were very sacrificial. They were gifts that would have cost these men a great deal of resource. And what we need to understand this morning as we look at the story is that a true spiritual journey will always involve sacrifice. I love the picture that these men paint for us. These men, they walk into this house. Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they're no longer in a stable. They're no longer in a cave. This is about a year and a half, possibly two years after all of that took place. And they walk into what was probably a tiny little house and they fall down on their knees and they begin to worship Jesus. And as they're down there, they humbly open up their gifts and they present them to this little boy. Listen, these men paid a great price to worship Jesus on that day. They traveled for days, most likely months to get from where they lived to Jerusalem on that day. They risked their lives traveling through very tough deserts, parched, parched, rocky slopes. They left their homes, they left their families, they left their jobs, they left their comfort zones so that they could find Jesus and worship him. And when they found him, they gave him gifts of great value. I want you to listen to what King David says in 2 Samuel 24, 24. He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Now, what does God want from us this morning? Let me tell you what he wants. He wants your best. He doesn't want your leftovers. He doesn't want your your pocket change. He doesn't want your scraps. He wants you to love him. And we see this from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. He wants us to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our soul. He wants you to sacrifice your best, your best time, your best efforts, your best treasures, your best talents. He wants our best worship. And more than anything, what he wants from you this morning is he just wants you. He said, that's all he wants? Yeah, he wants all of you. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, what God wants is he wants your heart, he wants your attention, he wants your affection, and he wants your best worship. And these wise men are a picture of the kind of worship that God requires from us. They are a picture of sacrifice. And the question we have to answer, ask ourselves this morning is, are we willing to go there? Are we willing to give God our very best? Are we willing to get out of our comfort zone so that we can not only seek after him, but follow him with everything that we have? This is the picture of the wise men. This is the picture of the spiritual journey that God wants us to be on. And then the last part of their journey involved change. Look at verse 12. It says, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, even though Herod had tried to use them to get some information so that he could have Jesus killed, God steps into this story at the right moment 
and he changes the plan. He has a different plan. He sent these men back to where they came from, but he sent them back in a different direction. He changed their route. Now, I find it interesting that after they worshiped Jesus, they could not go back the same way they came. They had to go back a completely different way. And I find that to be so true about us today. Listen, once you truly have an encounter with Jesus, you're never the same. An encounter with God changes you, doesn't it? I mean, how could it not? How could it not change us? And I meet people all the time who, 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 who tell me that they've made some kind of decision to trust Christ, but there's nothing in their life that reflects a change of direction. There's nothing in their life that, that, that reflects an experience of, of, of trusting Jesus alone to be their Savior, of, of having a personal relationship with God, of having the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And what we need to understand this morning is that a true spiritual journey will always involve life change. You look at Scripture and you see just the, the different encounters that people have with God. You, you think of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Here's Isaiah. He's this probably advisor to the king of Israel at the time, a guy named by the name of Uzziah. Uzziah dies. We see this in, the, in Isaiah 6. And, and it says that Isaiah walks into the temple and he sees God high and lifted up. And at this moment, he just, he just has this worship moment, this moment where he comes to the end of himself. He comes to realize his sinfulness. And he says, in verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I'm undone, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, lo- I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And from that experience, Isaiah was never the same. He became, from that moment on, the greatest prophet that Israel had ever seen. Think about Job. We're familiar with Job. I mean, here's this guy that lost everything. Lost his children, lost his cattle, lost his home, lost his lands. Friends turned against him. His wife looked at him and said, Job, just please do us all a favor. Curse God and die. There's a woman for you. And Job just comes to the end of himself and his friends are questioning his faith constantly and Job just basically begins to question God. He begins to complain. He begins to talk about his suffering and the trials that he's going through. And God finally just steps in and I think he had enough. And he said, Job, you have no idea who I am. And then for about two or three chapters in the book of Job, he just begins to lay it out. And Job finally just says, God, enough, enough, please. He says, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I, am no- I have nothing more to say. In other words, God, I think at this point, I'm just going to shut up and listen to you from here on out. I'm changed. I've seen you. Job met God and he became a changed man. See, that's what happens when you walk into the presence of God and you have a true encounter with him. You become changed, changed from the inside out. And that's what happened to these wise men. These wise men walk in and they, they, they have an encounter with Jesus and they're changed. And that's what happens when we encounter Christ as well. Things become different. We are never the same again. And so as we go into this Christmas week, I I want you to think about the journey of the wise men. And as you do, I want you to evaluate your own journey. I want you to think for a moment about your faith. I want you to think about for a moment, is there faith in your life? Is your faith an action word? Is Is it risk in action? Is your journey with Christ an adventure or has it become dead and boring? And if so, what are the steps that God is calling you to take right now? What are the risks that he wants you to trust him with? 
Some of you are experiencing a lot of suffering right now. You're going through trials. You're going through hardships. I mean, we've been in this 30-30 prayer challenge, day 26, and I mean, it's been just an amazing amount of prayer requests that have come in and a lot of suffering. Can I tell you, it's part of the journey. But the question for you this morning is, how are you holding up? Are you finding your peace in Jesus right now? Are you being overcome by fear, by worry, by doubt? Or are you living as an overcomer? Someone who's a conqueror. Are you an overcomer? Are you someone who's being overcome right now by your issues? And then let's talk about your worship. Are you truly giving God your best right now? Or are you giving him a steady diet of leftovers, of pocket change? Does he have all of you or are you holding something back? Is your worship sacrificial or are you just throwing God a tip? See, the journey of the wise men is a picture of the Christian life. And on the Christian journey, we see faith, we see trials, we see hardships, we see worship, and, but we see life change. And the question is, is that a picture of your life? And if not, why not? And if it's not, what are the decisions that need to be made to bring you back to the journey so that you can begin to walk with him again? Why did you leave him in the first place? And what do you need to do to get back to that place? If you know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is your Savior, what decisions do you need to make right now as it relates to faith, maybe what you're going through in your trials or worship or life change? What decisions do you need to make right now to get you back on that journey? God would love nothing more than to bring you back to that place. For some of you who, who are here this morning, you may think you're a Christian, but there's nothing that reflects that. It's just the wrong picture. It's the wrong image. There's no life change at all. Nothing about you has changed at the moment that you made that decision to trust Christ. And it may be time for you to truly evaluate that journey that you're on this morning so that you can make sure that you're on the right one. And the question you need to ask yourself is, have you truly put your faith and trust in Christ alone to be the Savior of your life? Have you gotten to that place where you have ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of the things that offend him, the things that, that keep you from him? Has there been a point of repentance in your life? And if not, why not? And would you be willing to make that decision right now? I want us to bow our heads for a moment. If you're a believer and you've just just slipped off the journey, this is a great moment just to tell the Lord that you're wanting to come back to Him. Talk about your faith for a moment. Talk about maybe the fact that, you're, that the trials and the, and the heartaches that you're going through have just overwhelmed you to the point where you've gotten off course. Or maybe, you know, your worship has just become dull and lifeless. It's dead. It's boring. There's no more sacrifice. Or maybe it's... it's you know, you look at your life and you go, there's nothing about me that's ever changed. Or there's just a little bit, but cry out to him right now. Call out to him. There's others of you that you are looking at your life and go, there's nothing. There's no life change. There's, there's, there's nothing about me. And may, maybe for you, you talk about the beginning of our talk and about just the wrong picture. Maybe it's 
putting your faith in you or religion or your past or your family or some religious tradition or whatever and you realize that it's the wrong picture. It's certainly not the one that's going to get you to heaven. Certainly not the one that's going to get you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So what do you do at this moment? You take the right step and you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. And if that's you, I want you to pray with me for just a moment. Just say, Lord Jesus, at this very moment, I put my faith and my trust in you and what you have done for me on the cross. And Lord, I want you to know that I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you are the Messiah and that you came to earth to forgive me of sin, to pay for my sinfulness. And Lord, by putting my faith and trust in you, by asking for forgiveness, by repenting at this very moment of my sin of unbelief, Lord, I ask you to come into my life. Lord, I want a personal relationship with you. Lord, I want to know that when I die that I will have a place with you in heaven, but I also want to know that you're walking with me at this very moment. If you just prayed that prayer, I want to welcome you into God's family. But I want you to do me a favor. I want you to take out your connection card and in the very middle of that card, there's a place for you to let us know that you'd made that decision. It says, this morning I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be my Savior. I want you to take that card out to the help center and let them know, let them know that you made that decision. We want to help you to take the next step in your journey to get into a starting point class. Or just, we've got some information that we want to give you. So do us, take that out there and let us celebrate with you the decision that you just made. Now, I want to switch gears for just a moment if I could. And um, we have got a huge week coming up at Westridge Church. It's, you know, outside of Easter, this is the biggest week um, for us here at Westridge. Um, and there's so many other great things that happen, but Christmas is typically when people who are not in church, people who are away from God, people who don't know Christ as their Savior, if you ask them to come, statistics so they will come with you. And you have been praying, many of you, for a mom, a dad, a grandparent, a brother, a sister, a relative, a friend to come with you to one of the Christmas Eve services. And, and we want to pray with you. We, we want to engage together in prayer over what's about to take place this coming week. So West Campus, I want to invite you as well into this moment. And what I'd like to do um, is I want to just turn this into a time of prayer if we could. And if you're you'd like to just come up here and get on your knees at the steps or somewhere at the front of the auditorium or something like that. You've got somebody that's on your heart that is lost. They don't know Christ as their Savior. They're away from God. And you are praying for them now to come with you. I want you to just to pray at your chair for them or I want you to come up and just use this as an altar of just a, just fill this place with praying people. So right now, if you would, just come West Campus, do the same thing over there if you would. And let's just ask God to put his hand on our services for the 23rd and the 24th and just fall on this place in a way where four services places packed to the brim and people are coming by the hundreds to Jesus Christ to be their Savior. So let's take that moment right now.